Welcome to the Charity Network News Podcast, inspiring you to make the world a better place. Our host is Lex Lumiere, an award-winning therapeutic artist whose family legacy includes over a hundred years of art exhibits and providing artwork for international non-profit fundraisers. In our show, you'll hear mind-blowing interviews from philanthropy leaders or creative souls, as well as news and insights to help you make a positive impact in your community. Now let's jump into your daily dose of juice. Please join us in creating excellence. This is Lex Lumiere. I am preparing the People's State of the Union with Dr. Ann Lundy today, and she is going to be sharing with you part of her journey and her love of music. Hello, Dr. Lundy. How are you doing? I'm great. I hope everybody's great on you guys, Ann, too. Yes, everything is good. So tell me a little bit about like your first memory of when you heard music or when you like fell in love with music. Oh, I did fall in love with music as as a child, but obviously. Um, I think it was because uh, my sister, my older sister, was playing the flute and the piano. And I was just, like so many younger siblings, was just kind of uh, trailing behind her all the time. So I just think I learned to, to, to love music, uh, just just following her and loving her and loving music as a, as a package. So when did you get your first instrument or when did you start playing and what was your oh okay yeah that would have been it, it was funny because like I said she played piano and flute and um so I wanted to play piano and they started me with piano lessons and then I wanted to play the flute like she did and they didn't have a flute around but um some another real an old, old relative had had a violin so they said why don't you play the violin I was like oh okay well I'll play the violin yeah so it was just I don't know, a sibling thing of, of trying to, to imitate them. I suppose it was maybe, I, I, I suppose in terms of getting instruments, really starting lessons, it would be more like in the seven, eight-year-old um, um, age. But um, I, was, I was telling someone that I really fell in love with conducting even earlier than that. And mm. it's kind of an odd story. That, can I tell that story? Yes, yes, go ahead. Okay, great. Uh, when I was a little kid, and that would be like four or five, um, they gave me a chance to lead a kid's band or orchestra. I think it was a little band or whatever. But I was able to get up in front of the kids and wave my hands around. Now, of course, I didn't know what I was doing, but just the fact that I was waving my hands around and they were making sound and then people were clapping, I was like, oh, this is great. Oh, this is so much fun. So that's when I caught the conducting bug. I mean, even though I was a little black girl growing up on the north seat, northeast side of, of Houston, which is very much was at that point a, a black enclave. It was, I don't think it was even incorporated into Houston at that point. So I lived in this little bubble regarding um, everything was fine and everybody, you know, we were all uh, working together as a close, close knit community. But I just fell in love with waving my hands around. And from then on, I've been loving conducting. Mm, that's amazing. So who was the teacher, like, in, during your, like, middle school and high school years, who inspired you to kind of keep going? 
Well, I suppose there were a, a couple of teachers. Um, Jack Bradley, who was at TSU, uh, that's our that's our local HBCU, and Bradley was the first black to get um, a contract with a professional orchestra, Denver Symphony, in the 1940s. Okay, oh, so wow. he was really inspiring in terms of just um, you know just making it known that I didn't have to be. Um, cut off by the fact that I didn't see any black folk or whatever in the orchestra because I saw one. I saw one professional black folk and he was talking about his experience in Denver and so forth. So that was one of the, um, that was one of the great experiences. And then, you know, and then I had some, some white um, um, teachers also that really inspired me. I remember I was going to, this is kind of an odd story. I was going to Robert E. Lee High School, which was a trip <laughs> to go to a Confederate high school. But yeah, I'm sure was, during that era too. Know, the reason I was there was because uh, the school that uh, that was close to me, that my older brother and sister had gone and graduated from, was Yates High School. And some people know Yates because of George Floyd and you know the fact that he graduated and so forth. So this mm-hmm. is you know, way before that. But I would have gone to Yates, but they didn't have an orchestra. So none of our black schools had orchestras in the high school. So that's why they wind up sending me all the way over on the other side of town, going to Robert E. Lee High School. And they had a terrific orchestra. They really did. And this was pre-magnet school. So they didn't have the what we have what we have now, the high school for performing and visual arts and you know those those particular programs. They just had um, a few good schools and, and Robert E. Lee High School happened to be one of them. So, you know, I went over there and my, my teacher who was white at that point, Karen know I've got the last name because she married a couple of times. But anyway, Karen was just a really, it was Joyce Durfee and Karen, uh, the other ladies. But anyway, they were really inspiring. Even though they were not black, they they really encouraged me and they really got behind me and was just saying, you know, you can do this. And I remember at one point I wrote out simple arrangements for the for my high school orchestra to play if they would let me conduct. It's, in my brain, it's always about how can I conduct, how can I conduct. So I was never really interested in being a real composer. But she said, if you write out some arrangements, I'll let you conduct. I was like, okay, I'll write out arrangements. So, <laughs> so I wrote out these arrangements. They were okay, you know, no, no earth-shaking thing. But she let me conduct, and that, again, I love. I just love getting in front of live people and, and just putting that music together. To me, that's just, I don't know, it's just the most wonderful experience. Mm-hmm. Well, the orchestra is really beautiful. I love, like, we just finished a production uh, for uh, Wonderland, and I love sitting in front of all of the orchestra because that's where I got to sit. <laughs> and you can just feel the music. You can feel the music, especially the, when they play the violins. Like, you just feel it move through you. You're like, this is amazing. It is. It, it truly is amazing. I love the live instrumentation. I feel like, you know, with digital technology, we're losing a little bit of that. But, uh, how did you how did you did you have to deal with any kind of racism when you were going through school and like how did you overcome that did you just push it into your music and into your art uh, of course i dealt with racism and uh because most of the times i was growing up i was the one black kid in the orchestra and i uh, played in a bunch of different orchestras because again i just loved the orchestra experience being in being in the orchestra so by the time i was in high school i was at the robert e lee high school orchestra and I also played in the Houston Youth Symphony. And then there was an all-city youth orchestra. And then at the University of Houston, 
they let in a few, you know, the, the uh, high school kids. I guess I was good enough to, to play with them also. So I was, I spent, me and my mom mostly spent our down like going to either orchestra rehearsals or music lessons. And that was our life. So mm. some people call it soccer moms. I call my mom an orchestra mom. Because she was always <laughs> a music mom, yeah. A music mom, she was always taking me to rehearsals or, or, or lessons or whatever. But it was just, like I said, I, I just continued to love the experience. And when things happen, I just kind of, it's kind of hard to explain, but I just kind of locked them out of my brain or something. And mm-hmm. just said, I'm here for the music. I'm here for the music, okay? So that's their problem. I'm here for the music. Right, you just compartmentalize it and focused on what you're good at, because you're gifted. Well, I hope I was, but I'm just saying I loved the orchestra experience. I loved the music, and it's one of those things again where once the music started, um, all those other things just kind of faded away. It was like mm-hmm. you were in this magical world of music. So the fact that afterwards somebody might say something, or I don't know, it just kind of like eh, who cares in that music time, that music bubble, that hour, those two hours or whatever it is, everything was great. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. So tell me a little bit about how uh, you have done through the pandemic, how your school has done through the pandemic. Yes, well, of course, this affected everyone. Um, our students, while, while it was really, really tough during those, those, those early months when nobody knew what to do, we had to go dealing with lessons online, and um, it was just—it was just really, really hard. Because if I've got a violin kid that's playing violin, and I'm—I'm I'm trying to coach him or her, and there's always a, a little split second regarding, you know, trying to make sure we're in sync with each other. It was hard at times because I tend to sometimes let them play, but sometimes I play along with them. That become—that was kind of hard at times, but. We, we managed to figure out a way to make it work. And I learned a lot since I, you know, if they look me up online, they'll see that I'm no uh, teenager or whatever. So I had to learn more about the computer and online things that I frankly didn't know much about. So I, I learned a lot too. And of course, there's nothing like your kids teaching you. I tell you, those kids know computers in ways that I will never know. I was grateful. They would say, no, Dr. Lane, you need to push that button. Okay, and then you can go back and do it. Oh, okay. <clears throat> I was always grateful for that. So, I mean, the pandemic, one of the things that did show me from a positive side, though, it just reminded me of how important the people in my life that I love and care about and that love and care about me. I mean, it's, it's your people, your family, your friends, the, the people that love and support you. And again, you reminded that not everybody is um, going to stand by you, as they say, through thick and thin or whatever, but the people that really love you and you love them, they, you know, we we became in, in some ways closer because we we just needed to kind of huddle together and kind of help each other out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, when you have those times, because the pandemic was a really big deal, you know, health-wise, we were losing a lot of the community. And Absolutely. so- the beauty of like those connections too is a lot of times I'm sure you have some friends that are also in the arts, <laughs> yeah. you know, and you can you can kind of brainstorm and discuss things artistically. But I love that you were able to connect with your students even across the technological gap. You know, um, I have a younger nephew and he's a whiz with computers. 
you know, so he's, he's a blessing as well. But I think the students have definitely, you know, stepped up. I just feel for them in the way that virtual is not the same thing as touch. You know, it's not the same thing as taking on the energy of being in the room. You know, it's, it's great for a lesson tool, but, but the challenge of it is how do you think about it? What if they decide to make all schools online all the time? Yeah, that would not work. That, I mean, we, we are seeing now that the kids have lost like a year of schooling or something like that because there's only so many things you can learn in that virtual world. I mean, there are things you can learn. And I, I'm very much aware of the fact that there are things that some, some people, some people flourished. I, I've been told, I don't know. But in my opinion, you know, we did the best, you know, we did the best we could. This was a new pandemic and none of us knew what we were doing. The government didn't know, the, the people didn't know. I, I know I didn't know, but we just did the best we could. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, especially when you're dealing with instrumentation, that's a different challenge, you know, because <laughs> you can't be right there to teach them. I had another uh, uh, an instructor tell me that she's a, she's a world-class gymnast and she has students and she couldn't teach her students. It was hard to teach them, you know, through virtual when they were doing cartwheels and stuff because she's like, I'm not there to catch them. Right. You know, so it's yeah. very interesting dynamic. That's, that's, that's cartwheels. That, that's, a, that's a good analogy. I like that because as I was trying to teach my little ones whether it's playing Twinkle Twinkle or, or Concerto or whatever, and I, I couldn't, I mean, I could say things, but I couldn't, I couldn't get that hands-on experience. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So what did you think of the government response to the pandemic? You know, <laughs> I'm going to try to say out of politics. I, I thought there were some things they did okay and some things they totally messed up. Um, I think overall, you know, the doctors, I, I guess I wish they had listened to the doctors more because they're the ones that really know what's going on. And they're smart enough to say, okay, we know this much, but we really don't know beyond this, beyond this threshold, what, you know, what will happen next. And I'm always glad when people say, I know these things, but I don't know these other things. We, we believe that this will help. We believe that these shots, that these um, um, gloves and the mask, these we believe these things will help. But is that 100% guarantee? Of course not. I mean, I just think overall, we should have listened, you know, and, and continue to listen to the doctors, more the scientists, the people that really live and work in these fields. And I just think they're more knowledgeable than, you know, government folks. Now, right. the government folks that follow the scientists, I, ho- I hardly, you know, appreciate them. If you're following the science, if you're giving good information that the doctors have told you, then then I support that. Mm-hmm. How? What do you What do you think the government response was for education? Did you receive a lot of support, or nah, not really? I just, you know, again. I know it'll be, they'll be looking over this for years to come and trying to figure out what happened and what went right and so forth. Again, this was really new. None of us knew what we were doing. And there were a lot of, there were, there were definitely mistakes made. I mean, there's no, there's no doubt about that. I mean, finding out, I mean, who knew at the beginning that the kids were fortunately, and I'm very grateful, they were much more um, in, in, they, they, they were not as um, um, negatively affected as 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 badly 
as the adults were, especially like myself as, you know, someone getting up in age or whatever, because it affected us. The people that I've lost and, and suffered, you know, through and so forth were, were much of the older group. And I knew young people that definitely got it, but um, they seem to have bounced back much more readily than, than the older population. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a severe learning curve, I would say, because we're all trying to figure this out. Right, that's why we call it practicing medicine. <laughs> the key word is practicing. <laughs> practicing, yes. So tell me a little bit about you. So you finish, you know, high school, you go on to college. And when at that point did you realize or did you always know that you were going to have a professional career in music? Um, yeah, I always knew that because in my case, I, I was more of a music educator. Okay, And I was blessed that both both parents were educators, too. And that had my mindset on, you know, that, that you became a teacher. I mean, this is so, so common in, especially in my community, African-American community, that um, there was a time when teachers were held in just great regard. I mean, they were just, oh, they were just thought of as the ministers and the, and the, the teachers, you know, and the doctors, they were, they were the ones that, that were held in such high regard. So in my opinion, some people like, oh, you're just a teacher. I'm thinking about, there was a time when you're like, oh, you're a teacher? Wow. So, I wanted to be a music teacher. I, I loved teaching music to kids. Um, on the side, I was still following my dream of conducting whenever I got the opportunity. And if I had to make an opportunity, I would just make up an opportunity. I mean, it's just the way my brain, my, my, my brain was working. So like when I was teaching school, I was teaching at a number of schools, both elementary, middle, high school, I've been going to college too. But I remember when I was teaching middle school and high school, during the day and then at night I'd conduct a youth orchestra you know or mm. you know then I would just you know like, like like a lot of people especially when you're young hate to say it, when you're young 20s and 30s you can do all that I can't handle that right now <laughs> where you can work two or three jobs <laughs> right and can, I can get like three hours of sleep <laughs> yeah I, and, and I could do that that's part of the craziness about being in your 20s that your body can handle all kinds of things. Later on, your body says, oh, no, 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 no. But at that point, yeah. So that was a, a, a great time for me. At the universities, I would try different things. And again, I, that was when I formed another one of the orchestras. I mean, I started conducting in high school. And then when I was at the University University of Texas up in Austin, uh, got with some friends and formed another little orchestra. And uh, when I got back uh, to graduate school, at University of Houston, and then I'd form another orchestra. And like wherever I go, I just keep making up orchestras. But that's how, the way my brain works. How rare are minority orchestras? They're pretty rare. I mean, they are. They've definitely existed from time to time. It's a funny thing. When, when I was working on my doctorate, I, I got a chance to read about some of the other things that have gone on throughout the years. I mean, in New Orleans, for example, in the 1830s, there was an orchestra of black women. I, I mean, just of black folks in, in that time, okay? And it was like, I, as I read about it, and I've read about it from a couple of sources, so I know that it did exist, it was like a hundred, both enslaved and free, you know, black folk that were playing an orchestra together, you know? And then early, you know, right after post, uh, the right after slavery ended, then again, you would find these small orchestras that pop up from time to time. Some of them would last for a short period of time. Some of them would last a little bit longer, but 
I found more and more that the good thing about it is that I'm not the only passionate person when it comes to orchestra. They've been mm-hmm. black folk throughout time uh, that have cared about orchestra, that have been, uh, been involved in orchestra. There's this new music uh, movie coming out that's going to be about uh, the great French, African French composer, uh, Joseph Boulanger. I, I know him as Chevalier de Saint-Georges, but he was um, 18th century African French composer. He was born in the islands, but he studied in France and so forth. And he was a very famous French fencer and uh, writer, composer, and conductor of orchestras in France, a black person, a black man, you know, in France during the enslavement was still going on. Wow. There's just so much out there. I mean, sometimes people, there have been times when I've thought to myself that I have three degrees in music and I didn't learn anything about black folk in orchestra in any of those, you know, any of those uh, studies. I learned nothing. I remember I, I did bring it up one time with one of my teachers. <laughs> Sometimes my mouth is ahead of me. I brought it with one of my teachers. He was talking, in this case, he was talking about black composers. And he mentioned something about Stravinsky's, Igor Stravinsky's use of jazz in some of his pieces. And I thought, I raised my hand, well, yeah, but surely there have been black composers that have done that. And he was smart enough to say, you know, I don't know anything about that. Why don't you go and research that and get back to me? And then I was like, oh, shut your mouth. Why do you have to open your mouth? (laughs) I was just thinking to myself, why do you have to open your mouth all the time? But the good thing about it was that it really was a blessing. He did the right thing by saying, hey, I don't know anything about this. Okay, smart people are smart enough to say, I know this, but I don't know that. So he was smart enough to say, I know these things. I don't know that. Look it up. Get back to me. And... It, it led me on this, this um, journey regarding finding the music of Black composers um, and just, just exploring that whole thing. See, I didn't know anything about it. And it, it really came down to, I know this is pre-internet, of just reading books. Reading books. I know people, if you can't find it online, it doesn't matter. I'm like, well, I found things that were in books. <laughs> Isn't that the most amazing thing? Books? You know, and I, I know I'm old school, but To me, there are authors and there are researchers and there are people that have done wonderful things, you know, over the years and have have written books about these things. And if you're just willing to spend a little bit of time, you know, reading their research, you will find that there is so much, so much. It's not just a few things here and there. There's, uh, I was about to say a gazillion pieces, but there are many, many pieces. It's not just one piece here or one piece there. There are hundreds, thousands of musical pieces by black composers. Hmm. I think that would make an amazing film too when you were talking about the half free and the half enslaved orchestra. That mm-hmm. would be like pretty amazing. That, to me, that would be fantastic. It was in New Orleans and um, I've got some friends in New Orleans and relatives or whatever and I love that city. Whenever I got a little, little change, I go there and spend some money. But I just love that town because it was that odd mixture of French and German and um, English and just all kinds of people. We associated more with the French, you know, because their influence was there. But there were so many different German. There were so many different cultures. And they came up with this gumbo, this musical gumbo, I think of it, you know, that just combined in so many different ways. 
Mm-hmm. And musicians love to play off of each other. You know, that's the, they don't even have to speak the same language. They can just play off of each other. It's really a beautiful right. language. Uh, right. so, so tell me about like this year, can you tell me like across the pandemic about a story of success for you? Uh, like who was involved and what did you learn? Well, um, there are a number of successes. One of the things in terms of our our nonprofit, which is called the Community Music Center of Houston. So please check us out, Community Music Center of Houston. And we're involved in principally two things. One is music teaching, of course, music lessons for the kids and adults, and then music performances. So that's where the performances have to do with uh, the orchestra that I talked about. It's called the Scott Joplin Chamber Orchestra, named after the great Texas-born composer, Scott Joplin. Scott Joplin composing. What we do is, what I do with there is I, I do find those works by uh, Black composers, whether it was, like I said, Chevalier de Saint-Georges or Joseph Boulanger, or an African-English composer, Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, or African-American composers, William Grant Still, Florence Price, um, Margaret Bonds, and just so many, so many composers. And again, you don't learn about those things. But as I have read and just, this orchestra gives me the privilege of, of going on this musical journey with me. It's like right now we're, we're rehearsing Florence Price's Symphony Number no. 1. Florence Price was the first Black woman to get uh, an orchestra, to get a symphony performed by a professional orchestra. And this is the 1930s, I think it's 1932, Chicago Symphony. And this was a very big deal at that time. And if you go back and read some of the, um, some of the black press particularly, I encourage you to do that, and the way they talked about her and the way they admired her work. She was in Chicago and that was a part of that, what I think of as the black renaissance. I know there's the Harlem Renaissance, but it, it went beyond just New York. It was Chicago, it was other places where so many creative black folk were doing just fantastic things. Even in Houston, as I've read about some of the things that were going on here in this this town. I know we're in the southern part of the U.S., but Houston has always been... I love Houston. I, it's uneven, of course, imperfect, and, you know, all those things, but it has these pockets of just creative genius. It has these people that have done fantastic things that you just have to dig it up. You just have to find it, and you go, wow, this happened in Houston in the 1930s, and I I didn't know that. Well, I didn't. I didn't know that you were the first conductor of the Houston Symphony, the first female first black woman, first black woman. Yes, yes, that's I amazing. I know, and it was just because I, I, I just approached them. Well, one of the thing about me is that, you know, of course I've gotten many no's in my life, but I always look at every opportunity as this might be a yes. So I just go and ask. And I remember I was going in there, and <laughs> security people were kind of looking at me like, "May I help you?" Yes, I have a meeting with so-and-so with Houston Symphony. Okay, just wait right here. And, you know, <laughs> the kinds of things that, I mean, those are the kinds of things that, again, I just kind of compartmentalize it in my brain and say, that's not why I'm here. I'm here to talk with the executive director and um, to sell my idea about, you know, about, see, what I wanted to do and, and I was able to do is I combined my orchestra, Scott Jacqueline Orchestra, and the Houston Symphony. And it wasn't just that I was the first black woman. What I did was I made sure other black folk played with Houston Symphony. And to me, mm. that was so important because while it's nice to 
think of like a wonderful person like a Marian Anderson or, you know, some of these individuals that have achieved so much. But I was always like, wherever I go, I'm taking my folk with me, you know, taking my, my, my crew with me, you know. So we brought in black violinists and black flute players and cello players and French horns and trumpets. And, you know, this is what I've always wanted to see, because if you look hard enough, you will find black folk that play everything you can think of violin, oboe, English horn, I mean, even some of these little not too well-known, you know, black folk. But if you look hard enough, we have done it all. So I'm always like, yeah, when we get together, we're gonna, it's gonna be me and my orchestra. So tell me okay. a little bit about your students that have come through the school. Oh, we've been blessed to have a number of students. Um, if you think of the, the terrific artist Common, his bass player, Bernice Travis, grew up here at our community music center. So he's a professional bassist now, and he plays with, you know, artists like that. Uh, Beyonce, when they were little bitty tykes, they were little bitty tykes, they would rehearse at our place on Almeida when we, when we were renting a space. And that gets us to the deal about us renting spaces. The great thing about renting spaces is that, um, well, I'll just say the negative thing about renting spaces is that they can jack up the rent at any point and kick you out. So what we have done is, since we've had to move various places throughout Houston, is that we've purchased a building. We purchased a building in Third Ward, for those that know, that's very much the heart of the Black community. And it's on Holman Street, 3020 Holman Street. And what we're asking for people is to go to our GoFundMe page. It is at Cash App uh, Dollar CMC Houston Text GoFundMe page. Or you can just go online at cmchouston.org. So it's for Community Music Center of Houston, you know, .org because we're a fine arts nonprofit 501c3 tax exempt organization. And that's what. You know, I like to remind people because that's what we're aiming for, getting a permanent home. Mm -hmm. And you're you're raising funds to upgrade your facilities, too. And, you know, we are hoping we can, since you perform with Beyonce in the Super Bowl, that we can, like, get some people to make major donations to your school. <laughs> Absolutely. And that, that thing with Beyonce, that was really great. That was her first performance. I know since then she's done other performance, but that was the first performance when she sang the national anthem. So if you want to go back and, and look at the, the early performance, that was her singing uh, the national anthem, and that was me and my orchestra, you know, accompanying Beyonce at, at the Super Bowl. It's very exciting. <laughs> That's a, Those are once-in-a-lifetime events as artists. That's pretty amazing. Yes, it is. It really, really is. And we're grateful. And and her, um, her, her foundation, Be Good, I think, I think that's what it's mm -hmm. called, they have also agreed to help us reach, reach our goal in terms of, uh, you know, renovating the building because the building, as I said, is in Third Ward. And one of the things that we did discover recently was that it was designed by the great African, African-American architect, John Chase. And again, if you look him up online, John Chase, he was the first black architect in Texas to uh, receive his um, degree in architecture at the University of Texas at Austin. That was a very big deal. And for many, many years, he was the only black architect you know, in, in the Houston area. He did things off, outside of the uh, Houston area also. So not only are we looking to raise funds to renovate the building that he designed, but we're also keeping his legacy alive. 
Um, his, his son, Tony Chase, has also agreed to help us. So we've got, we've got these great people here in Houston and beyond that are saying what you guys are doing is really important. So again, I, I can't thank all the people, but I thank everybody that, that that's helping us uh, as we work on this important renovation. Mm-hmm. And you have to match the grant, right? Yes, we do. And um, when's the deadline? The deadline is coming up very, very soon. Um, they awarded us 84 and 84. What is one of your concerns about arts funding for education? I remain concerned because it seems like whenever the budget gets tight or the test scores aren't high enough or whatever, they tend to cut the arts programs and the music programs. And I just I just think that is so not the way to handle these tough issues. I, I know we've got lots of things as, as a community to, to deal with, but when you make it so that kids when, they, when you start taking the joy out of being in school, the, 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 the fun you have when you're singing a song and you're playing in the band or playing in the orchestra, it just turns it less from a school and more like a, a place where you have to go because you have to go. I mean, for some kids, that music, it just makes choir playing in that band, that orchestra, that's what makes school work for them. So please, don't, don't cut those rules. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. You know, during the pandemic, uh, there was a proposition to create CERA, C-E-R-A, which would distribute $300 million um, out across the community uh, to different arts organizations and different artists. And, you know, they're still petitioning that uh, inside the legislature. So it hasn't quite completely gone through yet, but hopefully in time it will. I did some testimony for them to just try to push it through, but we're still just waiting. And I agree with you. I think the arts is very important, especially to children, especially in times that, you know, to us, you know, we might have had to deal with different issues growing up, but a pandemic is different when it shuts down your whole community. And it allows them, the arts, especially music, will allow them to deal with trauma or PTSD in a really, in a positive way, in a constructive way. And absolutely. I mean, we just, we can't stop. We should never squash our kids' creative impulses. It's just, it's just not the way to go. Well, music is very healing. It is, absolutely. It just, look how long, look how long music has stayed with you your whole life. My whole life, as soon as, you know, as, as, as humanity, you know, I mean, throughout time, if you go back and look at those cave drawings, you see people you know, singing and dancing and those kinds of things. I mean, the arts have always been there. We, you know, mm-hmm. we have to continue to support it, especially for our kids. We, we should not make our kids suffer. Oh, absolutely. So I'm all for funding the arts and I hope that you get everything you need for your school. I hope so too, because it's one of those things where when it, when it comes to the kids that, you know, as, as important as it is to play in the band and in the choir and so forth, especially our kids, I want them to be able to have those private lessons. And that's part of what I, that's part of what we're about because like I said, my mom spent time taking me to piano lessons and violin lessons and viola lessons and things like that. And it, it, it made the difference because that's why University of Houston was saying, okay, I was good enough to play with them even though I was just in high school. 
because I'd had a private teacher and she had been coaching me and helping me to grow musically in ways that um, that really helped to push me to the front. So I especially want our kids, our black kids, to get that extra push, to get that 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 thing that will make them really stand out. And here you are pushing your legacy forward through education. Uh, well, that's the only thing you can do. I mean, if you can, if you can educate the young people coming behind you, then your life is just not needs some work. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Everyone, my name is Lex Lemaire. I'm here today with the 2022 People's State of the Union address that Dr. Ann Lundy is going to read for you today. My poem is entitled, Orchestra in Black. I dream of a time when black faces of all shades are the faces of the world's orchestras. These musicians come from everywhere and live everywhere. They get their skills from everywhere and share them everywhere. The young watch them from everywhere and copy them everywhere old remember them from everywhere and treasure them everywhere and because the faces are from everywhere the dreams live everywhere i I love it it's beautiful it's your part of the symphony i guess so i guess (laughs) i'd rather i'd rather you'd say don't you want to play your violin yes you can play your violin too i don't mind (laughs) Right now, I love the violin. Okay, all right. Well, maybe the maybe, next time. Maybe I, if I'm reincarnated, that will be my next journey. <laughs> all righty. No problem. No problem. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Lundy. Thanks for listening to Charity Network News with Lex Lumiere. If you like our show and want to know more, check us out online or please leave a review. Join us again next week. Until then, focus on creating solutions and making a positive impact in the world with your presence. Be kind, volunteer, pay it forward and keep shining your love light.